Amen. Thank you, Pastor Gio. And um, I want to thank you all again for being here this morning. Um, whether you're joining us in person here at River Oaks, it's good to see you all. Didn't know what to expect today. I didn't know how many of you would be at home repairing your pipes versus taking a break and coming to in-person worship. I want to say hello to y'all. We have, for the first time, maybe this is why you're here, we have nurseries open for the, <laughs> for the first time since COVID, so that might explain it. Uh, these parents are like, take them, uh, <laughs> especially after this week. So, uh, man, I'm so, so glad that's happened. And, and also, I want to say hey to our Timber Grove friends at our Timber Grove campus. You're still in your second month of existence, and I just want to say, hey, we see you, we love you, we're supporting you. I know it's been tough sledding. It's a tough time to start a new campus during not only COVID and social distancing, but all this stuff we dealt with this week. And hey, uh, y'all are doing great, and we're so proud of you. If you haven't been to Timber Grove yet, it's in the Heights. You got to check it out. 8200 Washington Avenue. It's an awesome new facility, and you get all the same stuff that you get here. Great culture and message and everything. So uh, check that out, Sundays at 945. Most of you, however, are joining us online. Our online campus is by far our largest campus now. And wherever you are in the world, just let us know in the comments section, check in with each other. And, and uh, our online worship experience is becoming better and better. And I think more of a community. And that's, you're not just watching worship, you're worshiping with us. And so I'm really grateful um, for that technology. All right. So, hey, it, it has been a brutal week, a really traumatizing week. I don't use that word much because I don't like to feel like a weakling or something. I don't want to be one of those like, I need my safe space. But this week I needed my safe space, preferably with power and water. Uh, there's, uh, there's just been so much struggle and pain and continues to be. And we're going to continue working with those who are most in need to make sure they have what they need. Uh, if you're struggling in a, in a significant way right now, just reach out and let us know so we can be of service to you. All right? In spite of all the bad stuff, there was some reason to smile. There were some reasons to laugh. There were some silver linings. I learned some new things this week. I tried to take it all in stride. Like when I learned that this phenomenon can happen, if it gets cold enough in your garage, your garage water faucet can do this, where the water freezes <laughs> from the spigot to the, that's not running water. That's just a frozen like pipe of water that slowly inched its way up. That's indoors. That's how cold it got in Texas. It's not supposed to get this cold in Texas, but that happened. One of our families here at the story put their idle hands this week to good use, and they made a video showing the rest of us how to survive on gutter water alone. So check out this little 18-second video. Yeah, I am a man, 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 up, up in the air And I run around, round, round, round this town, town And act like I don't care So when you see me flying by the planet's moon You don't need to explain it, everything's changed Just know I'm just like you Gutter water goes a long way, man. The guinea pigs got some, the cats, the toilet, the person. <laughs> I, I, I was amazed by this. I want to thank uh, Andy and Emma Sharping for that video. You guys blow me away. That was, that was incredible. I, I learned a lot of new things this week. We all learned some things, like what we learned about something called ERCOT this week. Did, did, did anyone know what ERCOT was before this week? Some of you energy guys, I get it. Okay, you're smarter than us. Okay, whatever. But the rest of us were like, if you had told me ERCOT last Sunday, I would have thought you just meant EPCOT. 
and you spelled it wrong. But, but ERCOT's very important, as it turns out, to everyone's well-being. Uh, ERCOT stands for the, the Energy Reliability Council of Texas. And as we learned this week, reliability is the operative word uh, because ERCOT proved itself, at least in this event, to be entirely unreliable, much like the grid they manage. And we all paid the price for that. And, and I thought a lot about that unreliable word this week because um, I didn't plan it. But as we go through this book I wrote, Scripture and the Skeptic, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is the book I wrote called Scripture and the Skeptic. It came out in February with this month. We're, we're still marching through it eight weeks on the eight questions that I, that I pose in the book. The, the question we scheduled for today before the storm was, are the gospels reliable? And there was that word again, reliable, reliability, and how important a word is that? Well, we learned how important it is this week. As we know now, when something that you take for granted is proven to be unreliable, it is an earth-shattering, soul-shaking experience. When something you've always assumed would be there, stable, trustworthy, like power and water is taken from you, it, it really shocks the conscience a little. So uh, the closest analogy to what we experienced this week is, is uh, something Giovanna talks a lot about. My wife, co-pastor, you just saw her up here. Um, she grew up in Ecuador in the Andes Mountains, and they experience earthquakes all the time. And I've never experienced an earthquake. And whenever she talks about what it's like, like it sends a shiver down my spine. The thought of the ground beneath my feet shaking is truly shocking to me because as long as I've lived, (laughs) the ground beneath my feet has been reliably still. And if it starts to shake, I'm going to freak out. Like I I will not be ready (laughs) for my first earthquake mentally and emotionally because I always have taken the still ground for granted. Now, the way this applies to us today in in this message, and we do have some, I, I want us to do some real work today Put your thinking caps on. I know everybody's distracted with everything, but maybe this will be a welcome distraction. I I want us to think about the reliability of the Gospels, these four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because for Christians in our worldview, the reliability of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is like the ground on which we stand. If these Gospels are reliable sources for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we are really onto something here. But if they are not, then it's just a matter of time before our whole system of faith falls apart. Because the truths we hold cannot stand if the gospels are unreliable. It's as simple as that. Now, Christians everywhere believe this, but it's interesting to me that very, very few Christians in my experience could offer any kind of uh, answer or response to a skeptic's doubt about the reliability of the Gospels. In other words, if you were to ask most Christians why the Gospels are reliable, you would be hard-pressed to get answers that are satisfactory to a skeptic. You'd get a lot of answers like, well, they're in the Bible. Well, you see how that's not satisfactory to a skeptic, right? It's a circular logic. Well, well, my pastor said, and he's a really good guy. <laughs> no, that's not going to work for your skeptical friends. Those kinds of answers would have worked in times gone by when everybody basically was a Christian and even if you had doubts, you didn't say them publicly. But now in this pluralistic world, we need to be ready 
to give a defense for our beliefs, a gentle defense, a gentle answer, but an answer. And you would be surprised what a difference you could make in the lives of your skeptical loved ones if you listened carefully to their questions, assumed good intentions when they asked questions, and had a thoughtful response to questions like, are the Gospels reliable? This, I hope by the end of today, will be a no-brainer. This will be a slam dunk for you if you're a Christian, because it's, I think it's, pretty, it's a pretty simple one to answer if you know what you're doing, if, you, if you're ready. Right? But most of us are not ready. Most young adults in America have walked away from Christianity, away from the religion of their childhood, because they were raised by well-intentioned, but not always on top of it, parents and Christian leaders who gave them information without giving them reasons. Many of us grew up in churches. We were given the what to believe. Without the why, we believe it. That's why, according to one study, for the first time ever, more Americans, 35 and under, can name the four houses of Hogwarts than can name the four gospels of the New Testament. We're raising a generation of Slytherins. They're all becoming, metaphorically speaking, Slytherins, all right? Only some of y'all get it. Okay, so they're walking away because they aren't being given any any reasons or plausible reasons to stay, okay? So we're gonna talk about this today. I'm gonna talk about five common objections I hear to the reliability of the gospels on the part of skeptics. I know that these objections are, are, are good objections. They're good questions given from good intentions usually. So I'm gonna talk in depth about two, the first two, very, uh, very quickly about the next two. And I'll explain why in a minute. And then I really wanna to get to the last one because that's the most important one, okay? So the first objection that I commonly hear from skeptics when it comes to the reliability of the gospels is that the gospels appear to be edited the gospels appear to be edited. What I mean by that is we don't have the originals. We don't have the original copies. So we we have copies of copies of copies. And what we have today didn't even exist until hundreds of years after the events in question took place. How can we say such a thing is reliable? I hear this sentiment all the time. It's best summed up or it's summed up pretty well in this tweet that I found um, from this woman on Twitter. She says, mind numbing. 2019, and there are still folks who believe the ancient compilations of ignorant and goat-herding tales found in an old book originating centuries ago and since edited and re-edited by old men in dresses and funny hats. At least she's got a sense of humor. All right, so I gotta give credit where credit's due. That's pretty funny, okay? She's, she's, she, she hasn't done her homework, but she's at least funny about it, okay? So where do we go with this? The problem with this objection is simply the paper trail. We have the receipts, okay? You can can correctly say we don't have the original copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but what we do have is quite compelling. Compelling enough for some of the smartest people in history to, to see the evidence and say, I believe. So what we have are about 26,000 manuscripts or fragments of scrolls that date back most of them before 350 AD, so they can technically be called ancient manuscripts. Some of them are before 500 AD, still old, but not technically ancient. Most of them before 350 AD that have been discovered and continue to be discovered 
across the three continents of, of the world that the Bible encompassed, right? So, and the, the spread that happened in the first few centuries of the Christian kingdom, they, they had these copies in all these different churches and they're finding them now. They were written in like five different languages and uh, these New Testament documents have been discovered and the shocking thing for scholars that they never saw coming is that when they took these 26,000 or so different fragments and began comparing them to each other across language barriers and things like that, what they found was something like 99% verbatim agreement, which is unspeakably amazing. And I'm not like making it up because it's a convenient argument. We still have these documents. They're available to any scholar that wants to see them. And they agree to the extent of 99 or something percent And where there is disagreement, it's so inconsequential, it never affects the meaning of the story. The narrative itself is never impacted by any of these textual differences. So when we look at the Gospels, we're not talking about some kind of unholy game of telephone where the end result is like versions and versions and versions different from what was said originally. Remember playing the telephone game? In fact, we have some kind of inverted telephone game happening where you have all these 26,000 people hearing this story in different languages centuries after the originals were written, and then they're being brought together and compared, and they are agreeing to the extent, 99% rate. Unbelievable. So what this means is we may not have the original scrolls of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, unless Pope Francis is hiding them in his basement over in the Vatican. I'm still waiting. Pope Francis, if you're watching, it'd be real nice if you'd release the originals. We don't have them now as we know of. And so what do we have? We have the copies of the originals spread out over space, over time through different languages. And they are brought together in agreement, which shows they all shared the same source. Carefully. Very carefully not willy-nilly, not making political additions over here or cultural additions over there. They very carefully transcribed what was written originally. That's what the agreement of 99% means for us. So you can say you don't agree with the Gospels, what they say, I respect that, but you can't say that they were carelessly edited. What we have today wasn't what was written in the beginning. If you are an honest skeptic and you follow the evidence, you can't say that. All right, so I think what's most interesting about this point is that there there have been, in all honesty, there have been instances where someone took liberties with the New Testament documents. There have been instances over the years. Obviously, humans are gonna human, right? There have been times when somebody saw something in the originals or the earliest manuscripts and said, I don't like that. And so I'm gonna do this. But because we have the earliest documents, we take We go back and take the earliest documents as the authoritative source, and we can edit out the editors. And we have. I'll give you an example. If you have a Bible now, or you go home and get one later, bring your Bible to church. Anyway, no shame. If you have a Bible at home, you can open your book to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. You'll find the last chapter of Mark is 20 verses long, but you should see a note between verse 8 and verse 9. And then note, if, you're, if you have a good study Bible, all Bibles are good, but if some Bibles are more good than others, I guess. If you have a, a good study Bible, modern study Bibles will say the earliest manuscripts of Mark 
did not contain verses nine through 20. Now here they are, verses nine through 20 is over here, but the original version of Mark ended at verse eight. And it's obvious why some guy came along and said, this can't be the way this gospel ends because Mark ended his gospel this way. Mark 16, verse eight said, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End. And somebody with, with a heart <laughs> came along and said, we gotta have a better ending. We gotta, we gotta have, that's right, 11 more verses to, to put a bow on this thing, okay? But Mark intended for his gospel to end this way with mystery as a cliffhanger. He did it on purpose, all right? But the point is, there's no secret here. Throughout the New Testament, you'll find not many, but just a few examples of like this one where someone came along and, and made an edit and we've come back and edited out the editors because the story of Jesus is good enough to not need an upgrade. No editing, no secrets required, okay? So uh, I don't think this argument stands um, to reason, uh, this argument against the, the gospel's reliability. So let's move on to the second one. The second argument against the reliability of the gospels that I hear a lot is that they are inauthentic. What I mean by inauthentic is that they are not eyewitness reports. Somebody else who never met Jesus wrote these things. Why should we believe what they had to say? This is a very common one. And it's said so often that it's accepted as truth without any evidence whatsoever. One of those truisms, especially on college campuses and academic circles. What evidence do you have when you say to, to support something, when you say something like, these were not eyewitnesses. Well, a tweet like this is kind of what I, what I mean. Uh, this is a, a person on Twitter who said, there are no firsthand accounts in the Bible. No eyewitnesses wrote anything, all hearsay, doll. I was with her until she said doll. And then I was like, man, <laughs> I don't like the condescension. But anyway, okay, she's wrong. They're wrong. I don't know what their pronoun. They're wrong, okay? So this is why, right? So when we look at the Gospels, what are we looking at? Um, so here's what we know. There's a 30-year 30, 30 time span between the events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, and the writing of the first Gospel. Now, some of the New Testament books that we have are older than the first Gospel. Paul wrote his letters before any of the Gospels were written. Okay. It's a little strange fact. There's a reason why he never quoted the Gospels. They weren't written yet, at least not the ones that we have today. There might have been some stories being written, but they were not compiled into what we have as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For 30 years, the leaders of the Christian movement who lived and walked with Jesus shared the story of his life with others by word of mouth. Why? Because that's how you communicated to a world where 95% of the people were illiterate. Nobody just sat in Starbucks with their MacBook going, this is what happened today. Like you shared stories. Now you might say, what about oral tradition and the telephone game thing? Okay, well, I can tell you today what happened in my life 30 years ago when I was 12. I know I can tell you everything, not everything, but the most important things like Little League Baseball. I can tell you the final score of every playoff game for the Hooks Apaches, which I played for and how we went to state and got ripped off by the umps and everything. I can tell you every detail because it was important to me. And that was just Little League. So what I'm saying is 30 years is not that much time for events of the most consequence, important events, the most important events of your life. So it's not out of the question to believe that these stories were preserved intact 
for those 30 years' time. Now, what happened at the end of the 50s AD, so Jesus died in 30, so around just before 60 AD, all the key leaders in the Christian movement started to get arrested and beheaded. And that upped the sense of urgency to write this stuff down. We got to write this stuff down before everybody dies. And so they began to write down the gospels. And by around 60 AD is when I think the gospel of Mark emerged. Now, I wrote a lot about the gospel of Mark in chapter three of my book. Why did I spend so much time on the gospel of Mark? It's the shortest one. It seems like the least interesting one to many people. Why Mark? Because Mark was first. Matthew and Luke borrow heavily from Mark. Almost all of Mark is found verbatim in Matthew and Luke. And then they add their own color to their stories, right? And John does his own thing. He's in another world. So we'll deal with John another time. But the first three gospels, Mark is the key. And I think Mark is the most important gospel for skeptics. Because if Mark can be proven unreliable, the whole thing falls apart. But if Mark can be proven reliable, we might be onto something here, skeptics. So who was Mark? Who wrote Mark? Well, Mark did. That's why it's called Mark, right? Except Mark never self-identified. Mark chapter one, verse one isn't, hey guys, it's Mark. You'll never believe what happened today. <laughs> like, that's not how it starts. None of the gospel writers self-identify. So how do we know Mark wrote Mark? Well, we have several ancient sources, like first century real-time sources that are not in the Bible, but wrote about the Bible, saying that this guy named John Mark was responsible for the writing of this gospel. Not only that, but they had another surprise in store as well that I'll get to in just a minute. So here's what we know about John Mark. He appears several times in the New Testament, like in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. It looks as though John Mark's mother was the host of a house church. Acts chapter 12, verse 12 says, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So this family of John Mark's was, uh, was a key family in the early church. John Mark was probably just a little bit younger than Jesus. He was a contemporary of Jesus who knew him and walked with him. He appears several other times in the New Testament. One time is of key importance because Peter says in 1 Peter that John Mark was a son to him. My son, John Mark. Not biologically, but spiritually they were close. And this makes sense because those early sources who said John Mark wrote this first gospel also said he wrote it on behalf of Peter and Peter was his source. This is huge and really underappreciated, I think, by scholars of the New Testament. Papias, uh, who was a bishop in the early church, lived in the first century. He said this about John Mark. He said, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately though not in order whatsoever, he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. This is how we got Mark's gospel. And Papias is just one of four or five others who not only said John Mark wrote Mark, but Peter was the source. So there's no other competing theories. No one else came along and said, no, I wrote it. No, that guy wrote it. It wasn't Mark. No other theory. So if you are a true skeptic, committed to following the evidence wherever it leads, you cannot in good faith say the gospels, at least the gospel of Mark is inauthentic because you would find no better eyewitness than Simon Peter, the chief disciple of Jesus. Jesus' right-hand man, the rock on which I'll build my church. All right? 
So if Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel, as the evidence suggests, I think we're really on to something. All right? So the next two objections I'm not going to spend much time on because I've talked about them ad nauseum in recent sermons. The first one, the third objection is uh, to the gospel's reliability is that the gospels are uh, inconsistent with each other. This is just that they contradict. Um, I assume most of you were at Easter in 2020. You weren't at Easter. You were at home on your screens because we were distanced. But if you want to go back and watch that Easter 2020 message, it was all about the inconsistencies or supposed contradictions in the Gospels. And I encourage you to watch that. I don't want to waste time talking about it again. But essentially what I want to say is that these uh, supposed contradictions aren't really contradictions, but okay, I'll, I'll give you that, skeptics. Let's say there are contradictions between the Gospels. I used to use that argument a lot and Christians never had an answer and I always felt like I checkmated them when I said the gospels don't even agree. What I see now is that these supposed discrepancies or whatever actually lend more credence to the extraordinary claims made in the gospels than they do take away from the truth of the gospels or the reliability therein. So uh, y'all check out that message uh, when you can from Easter 2020 um, while you're repairing your pipes or whatever this week, just put that on and and learn more about why the reliability of the Gospels is not impacted by these supposed discrepancies. Fourth, many skeptics will say that the Gospels are uh, are, uh, problematically incomplete. So this is the idea, the Da Vinci Code idea. There were many other Gospels that were kept out because some rich white guys didn't like them or something. (laughs) Y'all know none of the first Christian leaders were white or rich, right? Okay, all right. So anyway, this is the theory. Some powerful rich white guys didn't want the gospel of Mary Magdalene because didn't agree with their politics. Listen, no serious scholar believes that any of these other so-called gospels, the Gnostic gospels, hold a candle to the legitimacy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No one believes it for no other reason than the fact that they were written in the third and fourth centuries, most of them. And I preached on this recently as well in a sermon called The Perfect Story. And I talked about how the the best thing you can say about these Gnostic gospels is that they read like, like teenage fan fiction. And they don't make sense. And they never name any specific places and towns. The four gospels in the Bible name 30 remote villages and towns that no one would know about unless they were there with Jesus. None of the Gnostic gospels name any other places, any places at all, except Jerusalem. Only two of them name Jerusalem. It's the capital, everybody knows Jerusalem. And then one gospel, the gospel of Philip named Nazareth. But he didn't say Nazareth was where Jesus was from, he said, Nazareth was Jesus's middle name. (laughs) Jesus, Nazareth, Christ, okay? So that's the kind of thing you get with these Gnostic so-called gospels. They do not compare. The only thing, the only person they've benefited was Dan Brown, the author of the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) For the rest of us, it's just served to confuse and and distract, okay? So there's four, and now I wanna get to this fifth one. This is, I think, really the only argument against the reliability of the gospels that really holds water that we should really pay attention to. And that's the idea that the gospel stories are absurd. It would be absurd for reasonable people in 2021 to believe in something as silly 
as the Gospels. All right, so this sentiment is summed up nicely in this tweet that I found where this guy says, people believe that a Jewish zombie who was his own father and born from a virgin can make you live forever if you eat his flesh and telepathically tell him you accept him into your heart so he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity. And that was just one in a longer thread. He went off, all right? And I appreciate his verbosity. <laughs> He's very thorough. You don't have to go to that great of lengths of creativity to make your point. You could just say, a guy said he was perfect. He said he was God. And then they killed him. And then his followers said he rose from the grave. That doesn't happen. That's ludicrous. It's absurd. I'm a reasonable person. I can't believe in stuff like this. And it cannot be denied that a belief in the actual physical resurrection of Jesus is essential for the Christian. Always has been. You can't be a Christian who says, I like the teachings of Jesus, but I don't really care if his body's still in the tomb. You're not a Christian, all right? You're a fan of Jesus, but you're not following the true Jesus. His whole ministry and authority hangs on his resurrection. It always has. As, P- as Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the 50s AD, He said, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? Listen, if you think you're so smart and more sophisticated than people in the first century, I want you to know there were people who wanted to be Christians because they liked the Good Samaritan story in the first century who thought they were too smart to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's addressing them here. There's no such thing as a Christian who believes the tomb might not be empty. So he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Uh, We have the next, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. It all comes unraveled without the belief in this absurd thing called resurrection. So what do we do with that? Where do we go with this problematic belief in the resurrection? Well, I became a Christian when I realized that my secular worldview was every bit as absurd the secular humanist worldview that I was clinging to for 13 years was every bit as absurd as the Christian worldview that I'd critiqued all those years. I I realized this when two things happened. First of all, I realized I could not sustain the standards that I had set for myself as a social justice warrior. I was not up to the task. So I was living in shame and in the shadows. Second, I went to the Holy Land and realized there were people in real time who knew Jesus personally, devout Jewish people who breathed the same air as Jesus. Some of them changed his diapers. Some of them grew up with him, graduated with him, followed him, who after they watched him die on a cross, called him their God and worshiped him as such. And we have evidence of this from the first half of the first century written on the walls of house churches in the Holy Land. God, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, what would compel devout Jewish people whose first rule in their Bible is to worship no one but God, never worship a man, to worship a man named Jesus, a man they knew. I could not explain this phenomenon. I could not explain how today there sits in Rome a church and not an empire. Without coming to terms with and surrendering my reason to the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb, and if you're, if you're just like me, stubborn, a little proud, I just want to, 
with all respect and gentleness, push back a little bit and say, instead of tearing apart everyone else's beliefs, have you tried really defining your own as a skeptic? The easiest thing in the world to do is to deconstruct someone else's. What do you stand for and why? Have you, in this world of plurality and, and where, where everyone in, in sophisticated culture is kind of anti-faith, anti-God, anti-Christ, have you lost the ability to see the, own, the, the flaws in your own thinking? So consider, for example, the, the source of reality itself. What do you attribute our existence to? You're a skeptic, I I respect you, but where do you think all this came from? I don't mean to oversimplify, but we're talking about a universe with two trillion galaxies, each of which hold 100 billion stars. Where did it come from? The vapors of nothingness just accidentally gave rise to this pointless universe? Where did life come from? Life emerged from this universe that seemed fine-tuned to give rise to life. But without a source of meaning, it's nothingness. It's an accident in the making. Pointless. But this pointless thing called life gave rise to this more advanced kind of life called humanity and consciousness, self-awareness. What do you attribute our self-awareness to? Is that just another pointless accident? Or to the skeptics, I would say, what do you do with ethereal things like beauty? And more importantly, with love. Is love merely the mechanistic Darwinian drive to mate? Or is it something transcendent and true? Do you really love the people in your life? Or is it just the synapses in your brain fooling you into thinking you do? How do you account for this so-called pointless universe giving rise to this pointless life we're living, giving rise to our pointless self-awareness, giving rise to pointless things like people falling in love with other pointless people? Or how how do we ascribe the status of hero to one pointless person who gives his life away for the sake of other pointless people he didn't know? Who cares? In that worldview, if you really think about it, he's not a hero, he's a fool for giving his life away. How do we account for these things? At a certain point in my life, I had to come to terms with the fact that my worldview as a secularist, as a skeptic, was every bit as absurd, if not more so, than the worldview of the Christian. The worldview that says there was a man who was perfect He laid down his life in the name of love, not only for his friends, but for his enemies who he forgave as he breathed his last. That man walked out of his own tomb, claiming ultimate victory over death and darkness. A real turning point for me was when I realized that when I was a secularist and now as a Christian, my heart's desires were largely the same. And I think we all hold more in common than we give ourselves credit for as believers and unbelievers. I think we have a lot of the same core values. I think we all want good to win over evil. I think we all want light to vanquish the darkness. I think we all want things like justice and truth. The difference between the secularist and the the skeptic and the Christian 
is our why. The difference is our why. Why do we want these things? What is the source of these things? As a secularist, I lived, I try, I should say, I tried to live a good life because I thought I was a good person and good people do good things. But here's the problem. My goodness was relative. My goodness was a finite resource. It was wholly subjective based on mostly like what I had eaten that day and how long I'd slept the night before and what kind of mood I was in. I loved based on how I felt. Particularly how I felt about the people in front of me because I said things like I believe in tolerance in those days, but at the same time, I could not stomach white conservative Christians. I hated them but I believe in tolerance, but I can't stand those people. I would march for women's rights in the light of day, and then I would go home in the darkness of night and objectify women in pornography. The same 24-hour time span. This incongruence tore me apart. I would say things like, I believe in social justice, social justice for all, but in my heart, what I meant is I want social justice, just not at my expense. I was not good enough to maintain the standards of what I wanted out of life. The difference in Christianity is, by the grace of God, you don't have to be the source of goodness. You don't have to be your own power supply because your power runs out. But Paul said in Romans chapter one, verse 16, that he is no longer ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. As believers in Jesus, we rest in the power of God, even as we work to make the world a better place, even as we still long for equality and justice and tolerance and light. We understand we are not, and nor do we have to be, the source of those things. And that's grace. And you can trust that truth. So I would just say one last time, have you taken the time to to question your questions about Christianity, to doubt your doubts about the Gospels? Because I believe this Jesus, who is our source and who has been the source for billions the world over, for 2,000 years and going. This Jesus is reliable. And so are the four books that tell his story. So I give thanks to God for the gift of his word. And I pray for humility and courage for you if you're a skeptic, to read it for yourself, to come to your own conclusions in an honest and humble way. You pray with me. Lord, I pray right now that we would be honest with ourselves about the absurdities of our own worldviews, about how absurd the things are that we've staked our lives to, especially those of us who have tried to be our own source of goodness and righteousness. And Lord, we know deep down what a, what a terrible thing it is to be your own source for goodness. 
and to not live up to it again and again and to feel that shame creeping in. We thank you for what we found in you as followers of Jesus. We found this grace that bridges the gap between the things that used to drive us into the darkness of shame and the ideal we know to be true about this life, that goodness must vanquish evil, that light must outshine the darkness, that love must outlast hate and fear. So I pray for humility right now for skeptics in the room and online and at Timber Grove to come to terms with you as the true source, with you as the reliable source of power, goodness, love, and light. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.